Good afternoon. It's Friday the 29th of January 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, we'll get straight on with it uh, because, uh, well, good news, Patrick. Uh, we have a new vaccine uh, as if we need one. Well, with all the stuff that's going on in Europe, uh, maybe we do. But anyway, here we are. It's an exciting new brand. Uh, this is a Novavax. Uh, really looking forward to uh, seeing how well it performs in the field, Mike. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's only 89.3% efficacy for this particular vaccine, though. According to Novavax. According to Novavax, yes. And they would know best, wouldn't they? Uh, and they claim to have uh, discovered this figure from a phase three trial. Um, I would like to know how they've done that, um, since for the Pfizer uh, vaccine, the phase three trial doesn't end until 2023, is it? Sure, yeah. Packing three phases into seven months. That's, uh, that's quite a feat from our friends at Novavax, Mike. Yes, uh, the BBC claims that it's the first to show on trials that it's effective against the new virus variant found in the UK. And how exactly would they be able to do that? I thought the variant just appeared uh, recently. Which variant, Mike? The Kent variant? No, the Kent variant. The, the Manchester, Manchester variant? Hard to say. The Cornwall variant? H hard to say, hard to say. Okay. Uh, it has, so obviously this is uh, three uh, previous vaccines uh, approved for emergency use despite not having proper testing done. And uh, of course the MHRA still, still not publishing any data on uh, adverse reactions so far. I can't imagine why. We'll come on to that in a second. Uh, but where does that take us, Patrick? Here's the Telegraph, uh, also saying that it's 89% effective. Sure, and they're talking about the, the Kent variant, Mike, here. So this, this it, it's, it's bizarre, Mike. There's a new variant that can just, you know, theoretically pop up every week. Uh, so this variant, that, so that how long can this, this roadshow go on just indefinitely here? Uh, but the thing we want to bring, bring you back to the images, this is Boris Johnson here, and I, I thought that's a very uh, uh, impressive image of him with the gloves. He's got masks, he's got goggles on, uh, he's got his N95 respirator, he's got a white surgeon's coat uh, there. And so he, he's, what's he doing, Mike? He is apparently making vaccines, I guess. So Boris is kind of in costume. This is just bizarre. This is total propaganda. This is the type of thing, Mike, that you see in countries like North Korea, where you have Kim Jong-un going around wearing various costumes, pretending to be, quote, doing things and looking at things. I mean, this is the level of, of the mainstream media now. Should they be They should be challenging the prime minister. They should be challenging the government. Instead, they're running this North Korean-style propaganda, Mike. Well, I mean, that's quite a strong statement. North Korean-style propaganda, some way to back that up. Well, actually, so, you know, go back to Boris here. So the question is, is this Dr. Johnson? What are his qualifications? What's, what's he doing? Mixing batches of, uh, of, of Novavax vaccines here? We don't know. But let's look at, uh, we've, this looks eerily familiar, Mike, to something that we've seen in Pyongyang. There's Kim Jong-un. And he's more or less playing the doctor there, wearing the white surgeon's coat, much like Boris Johnson. And that is definitely Dr. Kim. There's no question in North Korea that he does hold all of those qualifications. Wherever he goes, whatever he uh, costume he puts on, it is Dr. Kim. So is, is Boris Johnson going to be claiming expertise now, or is this just a, a show? Is this just a, a pantomime, Mike? And uh, is it going to reach the level of this? Here is the dear leader on a white horse, 
Very impressive, isn't it? But that's where the propaganda ends up going, doesn't it? Can you just imagine Boris uh, doing something like this on a white horse, posing like the dear leader, Mike? Uh, I, I'm struggling to imagine it. Well, I'll, I'll help you along there, Mike, because uh, through the power of CGI, we can make that actually happen. And right there, there's Boris Johnson on the horse. It does work doesn't it? Sort of like the charge of the Light Brigade. He's got that sort of Harry Flashman type of uh, zeal behind him. And uh, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, uh, a quote from Richard III. No doubt Boris has memorized that by heart and can repeat it at parties uh, at will. But this is like non-exaggeration, Mike. This is sort of where we're heading. The, in the terms level of, propag of propaganda from the mainstream press is Absolutely unbelievable, isn't it, it? I mean, we're showing you the Telegraph. You should read the tabloids every day. Mm -hmm. Jab army and uh, the, you know, the jabbing forces and all the vaccine propaganda. So where does this lead us to, Mike? Uh, here, the variant of the week. And so keeping pace with the various variants. This is the new talking point. Did, did anybody even hear the word variant back in November, in October, in uh, September? Have you, did you hear it before? the month of, of November. Uh, no, we didn't hear that word, but that doesn't mean that they didn't exist. In fact, there were already several variants, uh, um, sev quite a few more than several variants Se by that several stage. Several thousand. Yes. Several thousand variants. So what it seems to me like the government has basically co-opted uh, a, a, a type of a conversation, a talking point within uh, the world of uh, virology, microbiology, and basically used it and now are making it their sort of main uh, talking point piece, and it's driving policy based on the quote variant. Notice they don't use the word mutation. Mm -hmm. It's variant. It's much more vague. The vaguer, the better, because you can project just about anything you want on it. And so uh, the uh, Dr. Devi Srihar, Shri uh, she's at Edinburgh University. She's advising uh, Nicholas Sturgeon, Mike, uh, on COVID policy. She's not herself a doctor, but she's in the media every other day. Mm -hmm. She's on the BBC, she's on ITV. She basically does the rounds. She's a good uh, uh, congenial, let's say, representative of global health. She has her PhD apparently in global health, which, you know, in my mind and many others, global health really these days equals vaccinations. That's true. Now, what she represents, in the last couple of programs, we've shown a, a little bit of video uh, of the uh, Belgian flus are, effectively the flus are in Belgium, uh, making the point that when you're pushing a, a public health policy in this way, you've got to own the media. And certainly as far as Scotland is concerned, this is the role of, of Debbie Schrader because she absolutely is the go-to person. And the point he was making is you make sure you're always available for them so the media isn't going off and listening to other voices. It's always her voice they go to. Yeah, very good point in terms of managing the PR. So as we just showed you with Novavax, it's about keeping pace with the variant. So really, there is that's kind of an insane idea that you're going to be developing a new vaccine on mm. the fly for every new, quote, variant. It seems crazy, doesn't it? Mm. Well, let's listen to Dr. Devi here. I'd say 2021 is the year of the variant in vaccines, especially the mRNA vaccine manufacturers have said within weeks they can change their vaccines. So then it becomes a race of how quickly can we redesign the vaccines, roll them out and get them into people's arms faster than let's say a new variant could spread. And so I don't see any way around in the coming year or two having travel restrictions in place because that's one of the few ways to protect against variants coming in once we deal with the domestic issue of getting the numbers low. The next year or two to have travel restrictions. 
Well, there's no easy way out of this crisis, if I'm completely honest. I mean, this is a global problem. So even if we suppress it here effectively and vaccinate everyone, it could be circulating somewhere else in the world. And all it takes is for someone to get on a plane ride and come here. And if we have everything open and for it to spread. A year or two for travel restrictions? Yeah, you heard it right from the horse's mouth, uh, Mike. <laughs> they're not telling you that up front, are they, with no. the government? So it's being drifted out by, she's a, a very much connected with the Clinton Foundation, mm -hmm. by the way. Uh, she's herself a Rhodes Scholar, very much a Clintonista, implanted uh, really in this role here as global health uh, czar, if you will. Uh, and really for the UK, because she's all over the UK media, it's not just Scotland. So, but what's she saying? We need to get it into people's arms. We need to come up with a new vaccine, an mRNA vaccine on the fly. This thing has just been rolled out. It's more or less experimental technology, you know, developed in the last, what, seven, eight months or something like that. Normally these things take four, five, six, seven, ten 10 years uh, to develop and test properly. This thing is being fast-tracked out. She wants to do a new one for every, quote, variant that appears on the scene. And this is driving lockdown policy. This is driving school shutdowns. So they're using this variant constantly, moving the goalposts for every, what quote, new variant. And meanwhile, nobody can really drill down and show any actual scientific evidence mm. that any of these variants are either more transmissible in reality or more deadly or more virulent. Uh, it's really all just basically conversations up in the media cloud along with government. Mm. I mean, where is the actual science behind this? This is driving policy. And then she wants to do vaccines on the fly. I mean, talk the, the biosurveillance along with this type of a crazy vaccine regime, it will be never ending. The crisis will never end. Okay, this is what is being pushed down the pipeline. Yes. Yes, but in the meantime, uh, we've got a huge furore over availability of vaccines in the European Union. Um, and uh, the Telegraph here saying that Nicola Sturgeon is accused of siding with the EU over vaccinations. That's shocking that she would do that. I mean, she's only ever sided with the EU on everything, really. Yeah, it's a bit of punch and Judy, isn't it? There, there's the, luck, the lovely Nicola there in her tartan mask, Mike, but this is a bit of punch and Judy. What is it designed for, Mike? It seems like it's designed to create, again, this uh, not only the false demand uh, for a vaccine, because it's now about the EU stealing vaccines from the UK. Uh, it's not only that, but it's also uh, legitimizing it as well, uh, basically lifting these pharmaceutical companies up uh, to you know an even higher level. And there is a controversy in the background going on with regards to the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, in terms of the ingredients, in terms of the regula regulatory side of things. But again, Mike, this is all just basically gumming up the works to, to restrict the supply and then create this artificial demand in the public. Meanwhile, nobody's questioning whether these are uh, not only effective, but safe in the long term. That conversation's completely out of bounds for the media. Certainly the government's not going to mention anything about it. Yeah, well, actually, that, that EU story is a gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? Because it, it generates demand on the EU side. Uh, those nasty Brits are keeping us from our vaccines. So it's the Brexit argument. It's the Brexit argument. And it also generates demand on the UK side because the EU are trying to steal all our vaccines. Uh, and of course, one of the people that's really pushing that narrative is Nigel Farage. Interesting. So that, that plays into Nicola Sturgeon and Scotland's uh, sort of this conversation that they're wanting to side with, 
with the EU in terms of Brexit, they're drifting towards Europe. So yes. the vaccine's being used to sort of further that, that divide, isn't it? It is, it yeah. is. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, we reported on this program uh, over the last week or so, the fact that in Norway, uh, older people have been dying having been vaccinated. Uh, at the time, the Norwegians had announced uh, 23, uh, 13 of whom had actually been analyzed. Uh, but uh, in fact, the number seems to be quite a bit bigger than that. We seem to be seeing similar signs of that in this country. In this country, here's uh, uh, the Gazette uh, here. Coronavirus outbreak, 22 deaths in Pemberley House Care Home. Uh, and this happened pretty much immediately after uh, the vaccine was brought into that uh, particular care home. So uh, what's the situation? Uh, what are the kind of uh, what kind of adverse reactions are we seeing in the UK? Of course, we don't know. We aren't being told. The MHRA still is not uh, allowing access to that data. And they're thinking about how they might allow access to that data at some point in the future, what form it might take. Uh, but of course, all the every day that they think about how they might uh, allow access to that is another day that we don't get access to it. Um, so uh, what, is this, what is the truth of the situation in the UK? No way to know. Isn't that a major public interest issue? I mean, adverse reactions to a vaccine that's been kind of forced uh, into the public to sort of you know, put the brakes on the pandemic that's supposedly raging. Uh, certainly adverse reactions would be something very high on the list of uh, priorities in terms of the general public interest. Why isn't that being made available mm. already? So Yes. Now, on uh, Wednesday's program, we mentioned uh, Jennifer Chiara Literary Agency in the United States, who decided that uh, in the spirit of being a voice of unity, equality, uh, and social justice, that they would sack one of their employees because they didn't agree with their corporate ideology. In other words, the employee had signed up to uh, post comments on Gab and, uh, and on Parler. Uh, and as soon as uh, the company discovered that, they sacked them. Um, and of course, this is kind of a, 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 govern, a, a sort of corporate... Uh, Wokeism. Well, but it's a corporate legislative, uh, you know, you, you, anything can happen to you if you don't conform with the corporate legislation. Uh, but in fact, uh, in this country now, uh, the call has been made again in the Telegraph, no jab, no job policy should be the law, according to Matthew Lynn. Um, so he's saying that lawyers are gearing up for it to be what he's describing as a lucrative fight. Uh, unions planning campaigns, human resources departments, uh, nervously checking textbooks is what he's saying. Uh, the vaccines for COVID-19 rolling out at record speed. Lots of employers are starting to insist their staff get a shot. This is a dangerous precedent. There's no legal basis for it. Um, and uh, really, at what point does... Where, where, where is the law in this? Where does the law sit in our daily lives if, in fact, we are required to comply with corporate policy in this way? And we're really seeing this, Mike, with the teachers' unions uh, with regards to using this as a mechanism for reopening schools. I know this is already sort of in the conversation here in the UK. In the United States, exactly the same thing. They're, they're, they're dangling this a vaccine issue over as a sort of prerequisite for teachers to get back to work and come back to quote normal, mm. you know, allowed to. And so the, it's being used, it's being manipulated. It's, a lot of this is being done by the unions, unfortunately. And really the unions really should be looking after uh, the interest or protecting the individual rights of their union members. 
that's how, well, we talked about that last week. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we assumed that the position they would be doing, uh, certainly from a civil liberties point of view, but the opposite, Mike. The unions are being used to enforce uh, this kind of corporate uh, vaccination idea, mm. the, this herd mentality, no pun intended. <laughs> so. Yes. Okay, well, look, let's move on now to the Great Reset. This week, as we mentioned on Monday's program, uh, the uh, Davos uh, World Economic Forum virtual conference has been taking place. There can't be a real Davos conference at the moment because of COVID, a face-to-face -face one. So they have pushed that back until September, October time, and it's going to be in Singapore. Uh, but in the meantime, they're hosting a virtual one. Now, clearly, uh, the World Economic Forum have been getting a little bit upset about the these nasty Great Reset conspiracy theories that have been doing the rounds are getting a bit sensitive about it. So they produced a nice little video uh, for their conference. Uh, let's just have a look at a, a minute or so of that. The pandemic has radically changed the world as we know it. And the actions we take today as we work to recover will define our generation. Oh, is the time to think what history would say about this crisis. 2020 has been challenging on a lot of levels, as economic, environmental and societal frailties have been laid bare. But it's also proved that when we need to, we can act rapidly and restructure our lives. The recovery from the pandemic is an opportunity. We can see rays of hope in the form of a vaccine, but there is no vaccine for the planet. Nature needs a bailout. You don't want to go back to the status quo that you had before simply because it was the status quo that got us here. With everything falling apart, we can reshape the world in ways we couldn't before. Ways that better address so many of the challenges we face. And that's why so many are calling for a great reset. A great reset? That sounds more like buzzword bingo masking some nefarious plan for world domination. So some nefarious plan for world domination, Patrick. Uh, and then they go on uh, for another three minutes of that video to just describe the nefarious plan for world domination. Uh, and it's uh, they call it stakeholder capitalism. Uh, and of course, to be a stakeholder, you've got to be a member of the club. Um, so it's absolutely a nefarious plan by a small number of people uh, to uh, change the world. We can't go back to the normal because it was the normal that got us here in the first place. No, that's a very slick piece of propaganda, yes. really impressive. So you can see if you watch the video, the visuals on that, Mike, they're really getting, trying to get ahead of the, the, the dissenters, the critics, the quote, quote, conspiracy theorists online. And they've baked that into their little visual presentation, almost making a joke about, oh, we're not a conspiracy theory type thing. But this is slick propaganda. This is designed really to deal with the kind of people, you know, noticing uh, the World Economic Forum, noticing the Great Reset, now questioning it, because up to this point, they've been allowed to more or less do this in the shadows of the sort of the elite cadres, uh, if you will. But the main uh, messaging you can see on this is they're trying to get you to think that there was a, a pandemic, it's COVID, uh, and then that's changed the world. No, what's changed the world is government policy, lockdowns, mandatory masks, mass testing, biosurveillance. Coronavirus didn't do that. COVID didn't do that. Government policies do that. And they've 
very cleverly steered people completely away from that reality. And they're saying so many have called for the Great Reset. Yeah, so many leaders, so many of government uh, people at a certain level of government and, and corporate interests have called for that perhaps, but the general public aren't calling for it and haven't called for it. And in fact, uh, that level of society has already recognized that the general public aren't calling for it because uh, in various think tank uh, papers, we've seen the message quite sternly that unless something changes, uh, something significant happens to change people's behavior, people's behavior isn't going to change. Well, something significant did happen, that was COVID, and that has absolutely been driving the change towards the type of world that they envision under the Great Reset. So they shut down the economy, they shut down society under the guise of COVID, and basically saying, wow, this is really great, this is great for the climate. Uh, they've thrown Greta Thunberg in there, mm -hmm. individuals. They made the jump from pandemic to nature. You can see how cleverly mm -hmm. they did that in seamlessly in that video. Uh, and also I might add that um, uh, in terms of so many, Mike, um, you, you can get more people on board, but they'll have to deploy Greta to basically drum up the kids, uh, get the kids uh, now rioting, get the, or get the kids at demonstrations or school protests or whatnot, uh, doing it for the Great Reset, because the Great Reset is for the climate. Now, this could be problematic. Of course, Greta's 18 now. She's not a child. She's not. She's, she's a legal adult. So in terms of criticism, uh, she's lost that protective cloak that she had before. I mean, you used to get pounced on on social media if you criticized uh, young Greta, but she's not young anymore. She's an adult. So as a public figure and an adult, she is fair game for full-on criticism like any politician or anybody else, but I don't know how long that will be legal, Mike, well, to yeah. criticize political leaders. Uh, not long, as we'll see a bit later, but uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, mainstream media absolutely pushing this. Uh, this is the Washington Post today. World leaders pledge a great reset after the pandemic. Uh, and there's uh, Mr. Schwab and uh, Ms. Merkel, uh, very keen to look as if they are sort of in league with each other, in uh, lockstep with each other. Not every world leader that was uh, speaking at Davos this week uh, was agreeing. Uh, the usual suspect uh, was not agreeing uh, with their policy. And uh, well, here he is, uh, Vladimir Putin. And uh, so he said he was really first questioning whether it was possible for the world to avoid a war at this point. There's no, there are no direct, direct parallels in history to what's going on at the moment. However, some experts compare the current situation to the 1930s. And he was absolutely warning about where that might take us. Uh, he went on to say, uh, sorry, that's a duplicate. He went on to say, uh, but in terms of corporate prof profits, who got hold of the revenue? The answer is clear, 1% of the population. So he was criticizing the world, the types of people that were at the World Economic Forum and conference. And that sponsor the World Economic Forum, the billionaire class, the tech, uh, big tech, the, the oligarchs. Yes. So so that was his first main point. His second main point was to criticize the uh, the tech Giants. Well, he went on, but sorry, before we get to that, he went on to say this, the so-called quantitative easing is only increasing the bubble of, of the value of financial assets and deepening the social divide. So he was absolutely hitting the button on the head, but the nail on the head. But of course, these, these uh, people, Schwab and the, and the other world leaders that were there, are really relying on increasing the bubble of the value of financial ass assets for everything that they're doing. Quantitative easing is the foundation of their policy. And, and when you say quantitative easing here, Mike, it's important, I think, to outline uh, to viewers that the, all the COVID relief packages, all the bailouts, all the furlough money, that's basically money being printed 
by a central bank. That is quantitative easing. So bailouts for lockdowns, support, this and that. Because everything's been shut down, the costs of that being paid by the government, a lot of people think that's Rishi Sunak free money. Uh, and, and it's just like, you know, whatever, open the taps. Yeah. You call it the magic money tree. Yeah. Uh, but that's quantitative easing. So COVID lockdown has led to unprecedented amounts of quantitative easing. Well, and the thing is that if anybody thinks that quantitative easing is bad, <laughs> wait till later on in this program because the next round uh, isn't even going to involve printing anything. So, so one way you could end this, a lot of this excess quantitative easing in this last year, Mike, would be to what? Lift the lockdown open up the economy, uh, allow the government to get more revenue again. Well, pr a productive economy yeah. is what we need, not, not, not a financial uh, scam. It's, that's common sense, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So let's, let's go on with it then. He was talking about social media companies, and he's saying, in some areas, they are de facto competing with states. Their audiences consist of billions of users that pass a considerable part of their lives in these ecosystems. He said, uh, society is wondering whether such monopolism meets public interests. Uh, and he said that the tech giants should replace legal democratic, sorry, could replace legal democratic institutions and essentially usurp or restrict the natural right of people to decide for themselves how to live, what to choose uh, and what position to express freely. Uh, I'm confident that the overwhelming majority of people share this position uh, you know, as against that. Uh, that monopoly that they're building. Uh, but uh, this idea that social media companies uh, have been competing with states, Patrick, he's not the first to have that. No, he's not. A lot of people have been talking about that. Um, I actually wrote an article here back in 2011. It was about the cashless society, and I was talking about Facebook issued its first sort of token or currency really for, for game developers because uh, Facebook's groups had a big chunk of the gamer market there. And so they had Facebook money, basically, that was first introduced around that time, around 2009, 2010. And really what I was uh, talking about there was this concept of uh, social media have some of the attributes of nation states. In 2011, uh, it is a social reality that most people... Uh, you know, are in one way or another citizens of the Facebook nation, the corporation's success in capturing a near global monopoly of membership to their online platform has given it the ability to dictate an economic mandate to both producers and consumers. I was talking a lot about the gaming market mm. there, but you can extend that to the regular economy. And just to cap that point off here, uh, a, a severe lack of choice in the world of online communities has unwittingly or not positioned Facebook to play the role of banker, retailer, and governor. So really, that's the, the kind of concept I was toying with back in 2011, that some of these social media companies erasing international borders have, in fact, become de facto virtual nations. Yes, and of course, Facebook then uh, subsequently, well, a couple of years ago, issued or started the process of creating its own virtual currency. The Libra. The Libra. Yeah. For, which I believe has been rebranded. I can't remember what it's called now, but still, that's that's what it was called at the time. A type of a digital dollar, if you will. Yes. yes. Uh, but getting back to Putin then, uh, he was talking about, uh, finally, the green uh, situation. Uh, and, uh, sorry, before we get to the green situation, he was talking about international relations. Uh, and he said this, uh, such a game with no rules. And he's talking about the, the, the use of... Uh, uh, restrictions, trade war, sanctions, mm. uh, unilaterally imposed. Uh, such a game with no rules critically increases the risk of unilateral use of military force. So the danger of 
uh, a kinetic war, uh, which he said was un unthinkable, really, because uh, it, certainly anything on the style of the 1930s and 40s was unthinkable because it really would be the end of humanity. Uh, but he sees a danger of it. So he's really throwing down the gauntlet of Putin there on so many different fronts, Mike. But if you look at the current zero interest rate environment globally, I mean, it's totally unsustainable. Where are they going with with this economic model? Ah. Uh, they keep doubling down on it. And the only thing I could see is one of the things on the horizon, they, this would be a prelude to a world war, for instance. So, you know, this uh, concern by Vladimir Putin is uh, completely warranted. I think it is, yes. Now, something I hadn't appreciated, because obviously Klaus Schwab has been uh, very much uh, front and center in leading the Great Reset narrative. That's Herr Schwab. Herr Schwab. You. But, but I, I didn't realize that Fraulein Schwab uh, was, or Frau Schwab, sorry, was uh, actually, uh, it, it was sort of a family business, because yes. here she is. Uh, this is Nicole, uh, Nicole, Nicole Schwab, who is uh, co-director of Platform to Accelerate Nature-Based Solutions. Uh, oh, that's fantastic. Let's have a look at her CV. Uh, she's uh, from Harvard Kennedy School, MA in Natural Sciences, Cambridge University, uh, formerly worked on uh, health sector reform projects in Latin America, World Bank, Ministry of Health of Bolivia. Uh, she was founding director of the Forum of Young Global Leaders. She was co-founder and president of EDGE, Certified Foundation, a global scheme certifying organizations for closing the gender gap in the workplace. She's facilitator and strategic advisor to nonprofit organizations active in reforestation, well-being and women's empowerment. And she's author of a book, The Heart of the Labyrinth, which is apparently is a spiritual parable offering a message of Earth-centered wisdom. So she's very much been uh, pushing the Gaia narrative there, yes. right? Uh, so this is the wife, wife of uh, Klaus. Uh, and she is very much uh, leading this uh, Great Reset narrative as well. She looks absolutely lovely, Mike. I mean, uh, her and Klaus, uh, barrels of fun, I think. A night out, maybe some, a bridge party or something like that. Well, she was certainly having a barrel of fun because uh, she was uh, running this uh, session on carbon markets, a conversation. And, well, I think everybody will recognize at least two of the people uh, on, this, uh, on this panel uh, Mark Carney, Carnage, uh, from the formerly of the Bank of England, now uh, Boris Johnson's climate czar, uh, and also similar role for the United Nations, and uh, our old friend, uh, well, Bill Gates there, bottom left. That's Dr. Bill Gates, Dr. Bill Gates, PhD, Professor Emeritus. Yes. Um, so Carney was uh, really pushing the idea that uh, uh, he, we need to see a massive increase in the number of carbon offset sold. Uh, so we want to see that market expanded from $300 million at the moment uh, to between $50 billion and $100 billion a year. Uh, he said that he categorically rejected criticism that offsets were uh, a greenwash. And this is something that Greenpeace UK uh, and also the uh, Wildlife Trusts uh, have accused him of greenwashing um, because they're really calling this out as a financial shell game. Uh, which is exactly what it is. But anyway, he said, uh, Carney said, this is bringing those companies into a formal system. This is about maximizing the use of a very limited global carbon budget. This is complementary for businesses uh, and is one piece of the puzzle. We do need this market. And uh, then Bill Gates, uh, he was backing the plan. He said that money from the sale of offsets could support the bootstrapping of uh, green innovations. So really what uh, he's wanting to see is profits made from the carbon market being used to create new 
tech, uh, Silicon Valley startups, um, which uh, which helped push his narrative. His green tech. So the, the, they already tried the carbon market, Mike. Uh, Al Gore and his uh, partner David Blood, the firm Blood and Gore, no joke, or Gore and Blood, whichever way you prefer. <laughs> the carbon market, the Chicago Climate Exchange, it collapsed. The price of carbon went into free fall and collapsed. But guess what? Uh, Al Gore cashed out right before the price collapsed for a cool 500 million, half a billion dollars at the time. I think that was around 2010. Uh, so they, of course, if you've got the money to get in on the ground floor, pump it, get get the price up, inflate the thing, and then get out before it collapses, and then they'll fix it and put in a new version later mm. or something like this. So Bill Gates has got the capital. All his uh, billionaire buddies have the capital to get in in this new green economy to invest in all these green uh, fun securitized packages and basically make out like bandits and ensure that their wealth, they, they will be the Rockefeller class for the next hundred years by, by basically get crushing the current cycle, getting in on the ground level of a new cycle which they're going to build, mm. they're going to inflate, and it's gonna make, they maintain their position and push everybody else down. This is basically the story of uh, modern history in terms of gaming markets. Yes. Well, if anybody's in any doubt that what's behind the Great Reset and uh, and the climate change, the, the New Green Deal and so on, uh, is a financial shell game. Well, here is uh, Barbara Woodward, who's the UK ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, she was at the G Security Council, uh, sorry, not the Security Council, the General Assembly yesterday, uh, and they were talking about the future of the UN. And her point really was that as far as Britain's concerned, the UN needed to be getting behind this new Green Deal in a much stronger way than it already is. Uh, and, but she made it clear that as far as the UK is concerned, increasing the quantity and predictability of climate finance is a priority for the UK's COP26 presidency. Now, of course, the UK is the president uh, of, holds the presidency of the COP26. That'll be held in Glasgow later in the year, apparently. Um, but uh, this is what it's all about. This is why Mark Carney's pushing this so hard. And we'll see a little later what some of the other financial shell games they're playing uh, are. But um, this, is, uh, this is what's behind that agenda. Now, of course, if you're playing financial shell games uh, on one hand, but you're also wanting to uh, change people's behavior in the first world, the so-called first world, uh, on the other and replace uh, fossil fuels with electricity uh, and of course you need certain kinds of rare earth metals for that we don't need to we don't want to be breaking the habit of, of generations and allowing Africans to develop for example we wouldn't want to do that because that would mean we couldn't go and mine those rare earth metals and uh, basically pollute those landscapes sure we don't want Africa to develop a middle class no and we don't want them to sort of advance uh, in their countries. No, we want to keep them in their nice little colonial position within the global hierarchy. And this is really, Mike, this is what the uh, Copenhagen uh, Climate Conference was about. This is why Obama's big initiative collapsed at the last minute, because the developing countries found out that basically they're going to have it stuck to them by the sort of the G20 countries. So, you know, all great climate change, the environment, but for the poor countries, stay poor don't develop, you can't burn coal, you can't do any of this because of, quote, global warming. Right, so this is very much a theme of, uh, of the, uh, the Davos conference, but uh, I want to also highlight this video that was published a couple of days ago. Uh, this was published by uh, the CDC group, which 
is effectively government-owned, UK government-owned investment arm of the Foreign Office. It was founded in 1948. It has a special focus on Africa and South Asia. Um, and uh, so they did this little virtual conference. They called it Just Transition Finance Roadmaps in South Africa and India. This is their project launch. Uh, and what's this all about? This is about uh, establishing a $1 billion fund for sustainable investments to facilitate a just transition, transition to zero emissions growth in the coal dependent economies of South Africa and India. And this was very much the message uh, of Davos as well, particularly with respect to China. Now China are not having it. They have what they're calling, describing their clean coal technology, uh, where they wash the coal before they burn it and they, they capture various bits and pieces, but they don't want to be uh, being told by the West uh, that they may not burn coal anymore. Uh, Africa is the same. If they are going to develop, they do need coal. Um, and uh, But the West is going to attempt to make sure that they don't need it sure. because they're not going to get the chance to develop. Right. And if you're not economically developed, Mike, uh, you don't have the economic leverage. You're not going to have the, ever the political leverage as well because we all know with economic strength, with economic success comes political success, yes. comes geopolitical success, and we can't have that with Africa, can we? Uh, but another dimension to the financial shell game, of course, is the hedge funds, and there isn't a bigger one than BlackRock. That's right, Mike. And uh, here's one person that you want to be watching and listening to because he is very much along the, the, the vein of Mark Carney uh, as a, a, a luminary, a financial global luminary here. This is Larry Fink, uh, and this is what he's saying. Uh, as more and more companies, investors, and governments focus on the goal of a net zero economy. He's talking about carbon zero. Net, net zero isn't actually zero carbon emissions, by the way. That's another accountancy shell game with offsets. But a fundamental transformation is underway. Now, BlackRock has you know, trillions of dollars uh, under management mm -hmm. in terms of their investment portfolio. So they're all in with this. And like I said before, with Bill Gates and all of these Silicon Valley billionaires, they love this new transition because they're all going to be in on the ground level. Mm. And so is BlackRock. So, of course, they're pushing it. This is what uh, uh, David Rockefeller was talking about decades ago. Mm. Like, this is why the, uh, the Trilateral Commission uh, was founded. This is why all these uh, Club of Rome, all these other spin-off organizations, the Council on Foreign Relations, all these international quote consensus building uh, think tanks and organizations, uh, this is what their vision was. You know, the, if you owned all the oil in the world, and then you realize that uh, well, that that might have uh, some longevity issues in terms of being able to control uh, and be able to profit off that. Well, then if you can basically buy up all the resources on the planet and then transition to this new green uh, money-based or carbon-based uh, system, well, it's great, especially if you own all of it at the beginning of the cycle and you maintain your position and all of the people, your minions as well, mm. within that plut plutocracy, you maintain your position going into the next cycle and everybody else gets poorer. The middle class will disappear. Then you have this UBI class at the bottom that's hundreds of miles wide and about an inch high. And that's really, that's the rest of us. So no upward mobility, forget about all that. They look at the 20th century as a dalliance uh, in terms of you know, a flamboyant period where the middle class was allowed to develop and people were allowed to be educated. And we have to sort of change that now. And, uh, you know, 
one very good indication of that is what they're doing to education at the moment. They're shutting schools. So they don't really care about the children's education, Mike. Because we don't need educated uh, middle-aged people in 50 years' time. And isn't that the number one responsibility of a nation state? One of the main chief responsibilities of the modern nation state would be to educate uh, the young generation because that's the foundation of everything. That's your industry, that's your politics, that's your bureaucracy, everything. And so what they've done is basically uh, pushed that down, at least those people who aren't in the elite schools, That's Mike. right. Those who are in the elite schools, the elite public schools, they'll be fine, and they will continue to sort of populate the Mandarin class, but they've really taken a wrecking ball to everything below that elite level. Mm. That's what this, these lockdowns have done. This is what these policies, this is what our governments are currently doing right now. It is a wrecking ball to all everything below the elite class. Yes. And so that's going to reinforce a caste system going forward. So you could call it feudalism, you could call it global neo-feudalism, whatever. There's different ways to describe this, but that's the end result. That's what's going to be the end result of all of this. Yes. Yes, okay, well, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then uh, please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to join us there and that would be very much appreciated. Please also do share our material on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, BitChute, DLive, and so on. Uh, now, a quick reminder that tomorrow is uh, the great reopening. Um, and uh, so people being very much encouraged to uh, rebel or resist the lockdown at least uh, and open up their small businesses. Uh, and uh, hopefully many, many will. Well, they have a, a Telegram group. Uh, I think there's a, a link on the bottom there if you uh, take a screenshot. but. Yeah. But I went on and to have a look at uh, what was being posted, Mike, and it's very interesting. They're really uh, talking about this isn't really about um, uh, resisting anything so more than it is about people supporting uh, those businesses. They're really looking for consumers to support those businesses that are uh, taking that bold step to try to reopen in order to survive, uh, basically. So that's an interesting uh, angle uh, that they're playing there. And it's, it's, I think it appears to have a lot of support in a lot of different counties uh, across the country. And this was more or less successfully um, executed in Italy, although there were problems. The government placed a lot of pressure mm. on a lot of businesses not to uh, basically take part in the Italian version of the Great Reopening from two weeks ago. But nonetheless, it had a fantastic bounce uh, in some of these areas uh, for some of these struggling businesses. So it became also a really kind of positive thing amongst all the pandemic amongst the lockdown. So I think Good. overall it was uh, interesting. Yes. Okay, well, what has the delightful, or what is the delightful Jack Dorsey up to? Jack Dorsey, of course, uh, CEO of Twitter. Uh, what's he up to? That's right, it's the world's richest pothead, Jack Dorsey here. Uh, this is when he's being piped in for the virtual uh, Senate committee. So, but he's launched a thing called Birdwatch, Mike. So what is Birdwatch, honestly? At first, you're thinking, what, what is this all about? Well, what is Birdwatch? It seems like, well, we think it is and we know it is. Twitter's Birdwatch is a community fact-checking feature. Uh, so this is basically crowdsourcing censorship. That's what we're saying uh, at 21st Century Wire, Mike. But you can imagine what's going on here. This is basically, uh, they, they already have comments on tweets. And so Twitter's saying that, no, no, we need to take this further. We need to provide context. So we're going to... By comments, you mean that, for example, when Trump was tweeting about election fraud, uh, they were saying that this, this tweet is contested or words to that effect. They were saying the content of this tweet is not 
uh, true? Correct. Twitter was doing that. So yes. in effect, they're editorializing there. Yes. And, but the comments below are basically other Twitter users. So there, there's a whole debate going on. Right, in, sure. In, and that's where how it was originally designed for. Yeah. Uh, so there is the discussion. People are coming in and providing additional context and counterpoints. I mean, that's what forums and social media comment sections are designed to do. But Twitter's basically coming in for some reason, Mike, and saying, no, we need to have a, another special new crowdsourced. Other users can come in and make notes just like Wikipedia. So what you're saying is that some Twitter users would be more equal than others? Uh, yes, yes, and that's exactly what we're saying if you go to this article. And the danger here, if you go the Wikipedia route, why are they going the Wikipedia route? Because of Section 230 in the United States that separates publishers from platforms. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, they claim they're not publishers because they're not involved in editorial decisions. Well, in fact, now we know that they are heavily involved in editorial decisions. They're, they're censoring people, they're throwing these roadblocks up, these fact-checking uh, pop-up windows and things like this. They're deplatforming uh, users because of speech that they don't approve of or in a partisan way, in many cases, it's been shown uh, on Twitter. So they are, so they're gonna fall foul of the US Section 230, which protects them from liability for, say, libel made on their platform. So it's always been a kind of loophole that the social media companies have exploited in order to sort of keep their position and really maintain their monopolies. And now this issue has come up. And so they're being threatened by the government now to revoke their title uh, 230 status. So what are they doing? They're saying, whoa, well, we're not going to be involved in editorializing here. We're going to let our users do it. This is how Wikipedia has been allowed to do this. This opens it up to massive abuse, though, as Wikipedia has basically been trashed by sort of uh, nefarious editors, vexatious editors like Philip Cross, for instance, who are basically going around and putting defamatory uh, edits on various independent journalists activists, public figures, uh, they're openly libeling people, telling lies, basically destroying reputations. And this is all, uh, the, the board at Wikipedia, Jimmy Wales included, uh, the founder, they've all turned a blind eye to this. And there's accusations that some of these vexatious editors, these crowdsourced editors on Wikipedia, are actually working for governments. Well, in fact, Philip Cross, I mean, frankly, the number of uh, edits that Philip Cross and the, and the breadth of, of topics that edit, Philip Cross edits, that cannot be one person. It can't be one eccentric uh, model train uh, person in his you know mother's basement. Yeah. It's just impossible. So the, the the concern, Mike, is that organizations like Brigade Seventy Seven, uh, military arms that are involved in information warfare. You know, what's to keep them from basically taking over these platforms and running swarms of trolls, uh, basically going into this bird watch feature, for instance, on Twitter and trying to destroy what is the what will be called eventually, Mike, I think, the trustworthiness rating of users. User, users are going to be assigned probably a social credit type score uh, based on their trustworthiness. And so who decides? The, the, basically, the political consensus decides what's a conspiracy theory, what's fake news, what's a lie. And, and now, <laughs> we'll get into that in a minute, but this is where it's going. And Mike, so I don't know, is this well, going... Well, look, well, look just to put a bit of context in this, of course, in the UK, I mean, the UK has largely driven this censorship uh, uh, policy for a number of years, but uh, by 2018 or so, uh, Theresa May and Amber Rudd invited the 
social media companies into number 10 Downing Street where they had some conversations. And the British government made it clear that they wanted uh, disinformation removed from these platforms. And so the question then was, how would that be done? Uh, now, over the case, course of the following 18 months, uh, the, there was some consultation happened and eventually there was the uh, online harms white paper was published, uh, which was arguing that in order to protect uh, youngsters from pedophiles and other bad behaviour like that, uh, we have to bring in some legislation to uh, regulate the social media platforms. But of course, if you looked at the online harms white paper, you discovered very quickly that this wasn't just about terrorism or paedophilia. This was also about freedom of speech uh, and having the wrong kind of speech. Uh, and they very much that was very much a feature of this. Um, now, that document was published in 20, uh, it, 19, 2019, and a year and a half has gone past and nothing has progressed with respect to the online harms legislation itself. Some people within the Labour Party are asking uh, questions about that. Some people within the Conservative Party are asking questions about that, including people from the uh, Digital Culture Media and Sports Select Committee. Why is this legislation not come forward? The disinformation is as bad as ever, they say. Um, well, I believe that the reason for it is because it's, it's this whole model of do we legislate or we do, do we move responsibility for that, for that law or the, that co uh, corporate policy onto the platforms themselves. And this is indicative of that shift in idea. I think the governments don't want to take responsibility for this level of censorship because they are uh, hurting a little bit at the criticism. Yeah. Uh, so, so, the, so they'll do, they'll take the, uh, the Philip Cross Brigade 77 yes, route. Yes, it becomes is, a covert operation, a covert intelligence operation, effectively. Swarming, yes. basically. That's classic information warfare. So the, our question is, uh, is there some special open API arrangement between Twitter and Facebook and some of these government state-sponsored trolling operations that allow them to manage hundreds and hundreds and thousands of, of accounts? Maybe one operator can manage you know, 100 or more accounts mm. at the same time using chat boxes and Python scripts and all these sort of things. Um, well, the question is, is Facebook already doing this? And, and was this the, the result of that type of behavior? Because uh, The Guardian here reporting that Facebook had to apologize for flagging Plymouth Ho as an offensive term. Well, that's right, Mike. And Plymouth's in the, in, again, makes the mainstream media news. Often in the news these days, there's a lot going on in Plymouth, as we know. So Facebook, yes, apologizes because uh, it did flag up the term Plymouth Ho. There's a nice picture of the Ho there. You can see one of the most picturesque spots really in the whole country, one of the great seaside towns uh, of all of the UK and Europe. And yet Facebook, the fact checkers, the AI, the algorithm at Facebook said that this is highly offensive, this term Ho. Now, what does that mean to the average uh, British person, Mike? Well, it's not a term which is uh, commonly used, at least not in the way that Facebook thought it was uh, referring. Maybe plowing fields yes. and things like this. But if you go back here, no, Facebook has said that this is offensive because that's a derogatory term, uh, I guess, in the United States more so. It means uh, a promiscuous person or somebody who uh, is uh, throws it about a bit, as uh. they would say uh, in Britain. But <laughs> I... Many people have walked over that hoe, Mike, many times, including myself, and uh, we all had no idea it was such a trollop. But there you go. There you go.
Well, where does that take us? Uh, Brexit. Uh, Brexit, uh, the BBC here. Brexit, I was asked to pay an extra £82 for my £200 coat. What is going on? The question, Mike, how has this happened? So, again, there must be a plausible explanation for this. And uh, it, you, I think well, you, I mean, you gave me one before the show. Yes, the plausible explanation for it is this. Uh, the Brexit took part was in two parts, the divorce and the future relationship. The divorce happened, and after the divorce, we were supposed to enter a transition period. But the transition period, the question then was, what are we transitioning into? Well, the answer to that came from the negotiations uh, for the future relationship, but that wasn't set on the 1st of January 2020. No, we didn't know that until the 1st of January 2021. Boris made a decision that he would not extend that transition period, uh, but he also made the decision that he was going to run the uh, the negotiations up to the wire because that was the only way he was going to get a deal that he was happy with. That's the narrative that we're told, at least. Um, so we are in the situation where nobody knew what we were transitioning into af until after the transition period had happened. And as a result, uh, all the procedures and uh, documentation that's required uh, to deal with the new regime isn't really in place. Uh, and so we're seeing headlines like that as, as a result, but we're also seeing queues of trucks. Uh, we're also seeing supply chains broken, uh, products not being able to be shipped, shipped to Northern Ireland, products not being able to ship, be shipped to uh, the UK from Europe or to Europe from the UK. Nobody really understands what's going on. Um, and the government, although they set up uh, a team of people yesterday to uh, try to deal with this or to at least look at it, um, they aren't really dealing with it. So this looks to me very much like a little bit of punishment from the, uh, from the government on the uh, population of the UK uh, for demanding Brexit in the first place. So what do they, they should have done, uh, Boris should have extended the transition period. That would have made sense, right? Well, it would have made sense that if you're going to transition to something, then you need a period of time to transition towards it instead of just switching the lights off. Um, and... Uh, it would have been sensible perhaps to maybe extend it by six months and allow people to get used to the new system. So they neglected to even mention this thing like a VAT being slapped on uh, by European countries and things like this. Oh, no, the VAT issue is a whole different story and we will talk about that next week. But at the same time as Brexit, the UK decided to uh, implement a new VAT regime, which means that every country in the world has to collect VAT on behalf of, of, the, uh, of HMRC. So every exporter or every company in every country in the world that's exporting goods into the UK is now required to register with HMRC uh, and uh, fill in quarterly VAT returns and pay them money and collect the VAT at source. Really? So, so it's no longer a, a problem for the, for the borders. This is a problem for the, uh, for the exporter. And they're expecting people are actually going to be doing that. Yeah, they're expecting that. So that's part of, that's another part of the reason why uh, supply chains are disrupted, but of course it's all being blamed on Brexit. So, so let me let me just say this in, in summation, Mike. Um, Nigel Farage, I'm not picking on Nigel, but I'm just saying he is Mr. Brexit. He was championing Brexit from the beginning. He is a former trader in the city, knows about money, knows about import export and sums, good with the numbers. Why did Nigel Farage flag up this very basic? basic problem that has now turned into somewhat of a crisis. Uh, he's had three or four years. I never heard him once, at least in the last year or two, ever mention that this might be a problem or right now about holding the government to account. 
uh, they promised an oven-ready Brexit deal, Mike, but it looks more like a TV dinner uh, Brexit at deal at, at best. best. Yeah. Yes. Okay, well, look, uh, let's come back onto the financial situation, financial system, and the financial shell game that's being played. Um, here is uh, Benoit Coeur from the uh, Bank for International Settlements. Uh, they have uh, decided to set priorities uh, for, this is their words, for an innovation hub uh, in 2021. Uh, and central bank digital currencies are the key part of it. Uh, so this work program shows our commitment to exploring the most practical ways how to best to harness technical, technological change for the benefit of central banks, is what he's saying at the launch of this. Uh, and uh, so what are they talking about? We'll come on to that in a second. Uh, he also wants to create public goods to support the global financial system. So it's not public goods to support the public or public goods to make the public feel better. It's to support the global financial system. So let's look at uh, what they're talking about here. Uh, first of all, a proof of concept platform using multiple wholesale uh, central bank digital currencies to explore the feasibility of faster and cheaper cross-border payments. Uh, a technological research project and associated prototypes for tiered retail uh, central bank digital currency distribution architectures. Uh, and finally, a distributed ledger technology blockchain mm. uh, prototype for distribution of tokenized green bonds. So this is where they're going with it. So. Patrick, what is the model here? Because I'm going to say that this is all about creating the global currency, the global currency. So if we take the European model as, as an example, in the European model, we have the Eurozone. And at the top of the Eurozone pyramid is the European Central Bank. And underneath that are all the national central banks of all the European member states. Each national member uh, central bank is entitled to print euros uh, and they print euros with their own national design. So the Germany has German euros, Netherlands has Dutch euros, France has French euros, but you can spend those euros in any country in Europe. What this is doing with central bank digital currencies, taking that up a level to the global level, with the Bank of International Settlements being equivalent to the European Central Bank, and each of the central banks around the world being equivalent to each of the national central banks in the European uh, Eurozone. Um, and so we are moving in the direction of a global currency on the euro model, it looks to me, uh, with tokenized green bonds uh, replacing national, uh, national sovereign bonds. So this is a dangerous direction to be heading in. It's two things, quickly, it's two things. That would spell really an end to uh, sovereignty, uh, to national sovereignty. Certainly, if you don't have the uh, power or the authority to uh, print or create your own, manage your own money and your own uh, hard currency, then you really have no sovereignty. The other thing, it's inflating a new green bubble, a new green mm -hmm. asset bubble, uh, a carbon-backed, if you will, asset bubble, or nature-backed, I think is more accurate, asset bubble. And of course, again, back to the original theme, if you're able to get in on the ground level and you have billions at hand, ready to invest to kickstart that system, uh, you'll be doing just fine and you'll be able to ride all the various tumultuous cycles of that new experimental green pie in the sky, utopia, Venus project, financial market. Yeah. So it's lovely if you got the cash, but for everybody else, well, that means you'll be able to drive less. Uh, you won't be able to fly as much. If you can afford the carbon offsets, your carbon indulgences, you'll be able to do all these different things. But those who can't, well, sorry, tough luck. Tough luck. 
Um, okay, but uh, ordinary people have been getting access to the financial markets recently in a much easier way through Robinhood, for example, that particular app. Yeah, Robinhood, the stock trading app for individuals. So this is a massive story here. Very much a groundbreaking story. GameStop, you probably see this all over the uh, headlines and your news feeds on Twitter, etc. What is GameStop? Well, essentially GameStop, look at this. This is a retail national chain in the United States. All of these types of uh, uh, firms have been destroyed by lockdowns in 2020. GameStop especially has been hit by online gaming and cloud-based gaming. So they've been, their stock has just been going down and down. And so Wall Street has been basically betting against GameStop. Mm. A lot of the big hedge funds are betting on their failure. And of course, during the quote pandemic, during lockdowns and stuff, they know it's going down. They put put options to really cash in on this. And guess what? A group of Reddit users under the Reddit or the subreddit of uh, Wall Street Bets basically got a bunch of users together and said, hey, you know, we don't like this. This is predatory. Not only that, American AMC, the cinema chain, mm -hmm. that's been destroyed by lockdown. So Reddit users got together and started buying GameStop, uh, GameStop, uh, GameStop stock and basically went up 1,000% uh, up to Wednesday. And so they made out like absolute, and it made out absolute killing. So why all these little uh, individual investors made a fortune uh, driving the stock of GameStop up using Robinhood and mm -hmm. things like this, all the Wall Street had funds that betted against it, they took an absolute beating, and some of them were nearly ready to jump out the windows, uh, a la the Great Depression style, and they're so angry at this, and guess what? Security Exchange got involved, the Biden government intervened to put a stop on the trading mm -hmm. of GameStop and AMC. So the Democrats immediately coming in with centralized control of the market. you got to protect the hedge funds. Got to protect Wall Street. That's who put Biden in office and who put Obama in office as well. And you got to crush the high street through pandemic type policies. And here they are really getting aggressive. So this is interesting. Now it's on basically. And so Robinhood even put a hold on those trades as well. And so, by the way, there's a connection between Robinhood, the parent company, and Janet Yelling, the new Treasury. Tre yes, so right. they've paid her hundreds of thousands in speaking engagements and she's returned the favor here by basically putting the brakes on GameStop and AMC trades by the Reddit users. So Robinhood users are now filing a class action suit against Robinhood after restricting transactions on these various stocks, Mike. So again, the game's on. And so if you look at how the, the, the media's calling this right now, they're calling it the GameStop effect. This is Reuters here saying this could ripple further as Wall Street eyes short squeeze candidates. So Wall Street's doing this all the time. And lo and behold, Mike, it's happening already. Look at this. GameStop phenomenon spreads to Malaysian glove stocks. What happened here? Malaysian retail investors joined forces on social media and pushed up stocks of under-pressure rubber glove makers on Friday, taking inspiration from the recent GameStop trading phenomenon in the U.S. I mean, it's endless, Mike, where this this might not end. This is a whole new paradigm. The, I mean, it, it is really positive news, isn't it? Because people are, you know, many, many people ask, what can I do? Here's an example of what people are doing, and it is having a massive effect on the financial system. Massively. It's putting a lot of pressure on all these predatory hedge fund mm. firms. And just to give you an idea, there's one uh, uh, hedge fund that was basically shorting 
uh, a lot of the uh, businesses that were being affected by lockdown. Mm -hmm. So let's listen to this clip uh, and listen very closely. This is, uh, I believe, Paul Ackman, CEO of uh, Pershing uh, Hedge Fund here. But uh, we're going to play this clip and you will be absolutely shocked. Now, this was in March. This was in March 2020, just before lockdowns were being announced, really. And listen to what he's saying, this, this kind of He's a, it's kind of a dramatic performance, if you will, by this hedge fund CEO on CNBC Financial Network. Listen to this. Hell is coming. This was a feeling like I've never had. Like there's a tsunami coming, right? The tsunami's coming in. You feel it in the air, right? The tide starts to roll out, okay? And on the beach, people are playing and having fun like there's nothing going on. And that is the feeling I've had for the last two months. Okay, and, and my colleagues at work okay, thought I was a lunatic. We need to shut it down now. America will end as we know it, okay, I'm sorry to say so, okay, unless we take this option. Right, so that's Bill Ackman, Pershing Square Capital, on March 18th, saying we need to shut it all down, mm. shut the economy down. And so, meanwhile, he's doing that in the media, and then behind the scenes, what is, what is his firm doing? Taking short positions on everything. Betting that these businesses are going to fail. Unbelievable, right? Well, here he is. Listen to this. Basically telling everybody the hotel industry is going to zero. This was a, around the same time before lockdown. Here he is again. Take a look at Hilton stock. We're a major shareholder of Hilton. Hilton is the canary in the coal mine. This is an incredibly well-capitalized, amazing, dominant global company that actually doesn't own many hotels. It just collects royalties down from like 120 to 50. Okay, it's going to zero. Okay, along with every other hotel company in the world, you know. So by making a statement like that in such a public way, of course, he's discouraging anybody from investing in that. Not only that, encouraging people to sell off mm. their shares in Hilton or any major hotel group. So they're pushing, these people are pushing lockdown in public. And then they're betting against all the businesses that are going to fail because of lockdown. I mean, they're shorting people all the time. In fact, they've been doing this for years. You're well-versed uh, in the escapades of these companies, Mike. But uh, it's not illegal. It's totally legal. But it, it provides no value to the real economy, to the people right. uh, of, the, of the United States, for instance, or anybody. It doesn't contribute to anything. All it does is basically make those firms fatter basically profiting off the absolute misery mm. of everybody else. And so the GameStop, Reddit crowd have basically come to hit back at these big hedge funds. This is a real David and Goliath moment. And it's also shown that social media can be useful uh, in terms of you know getting people together and organizing around a concept. So this is definitely, an, to me, an anti-lockdown move by the Reddit users of yes. protecting uh, the Main Street. The, the Main Street that governments in the U.S. and the U.K. are so determined to destroy, to crush, that Mark Carney said those businesses need to be punished if they're not on board with the Green New Deal, mm -hmm. etc. And so it's great to see, and by the way, Donald Trump Jr. and AOC are on the same page on the GameStop issue. Mm -hmm. So And so this is, what, this is what really goes on. This is the sort of insider trading, the manipulation, and it's just uh, so fitting, Mike, that we see this story. Nancy Pelosi's husband uh, had put $1 million uh, basically betting on Tesla stock to go up. This was a couple of days ago, Mike. Now, 
here she is. This is Nancy's. Now, what was her windfall for this? Well, Tesla shares did go up, Mike. They went up uh, by quite a lot. Maybe, uh, you know, 70%, something like that. So what was her windfall? It was about 1.7 million she made on that deal, okay? So, but, but this is, she knew something was gonna happen, didn't she? Well, but why would she put so much money on Tesla? Well, Magoo made this announcement. A couple of days later, Biden says he will replace the entire federal fleet with electric vehicles, and boom, Tesla's, Tesla's stock skyrockets. Nancy Pelosi takes home 1.7 million in profit ahead of this announcement. The insider trading on Washington, D.C., members of Congress, it's unbelievable. It's criminal. Can you believe this? I can't believe it, yes. And, and, and she's worth, Nancy Pelosi is worth over $150 million. How do, you, how do you accumulate that level of wealth on a congressional salary? This has been one of the great mysteries. Uh, but it's not a mystery when you see stories like this. Yes. Okay, well, sticking in the United States, then, uh, this, uh, this headline here, Capital Security Failures Apology. Who's apologizing? Well, again, we're seeing this, you remember, the whole furor from the January 6th D.C. protest stroke riots, and we, we heard about stand-down orders early with the D.C. police, and here, Capital Security are now apologizing because they basically let it happen, essentially. And so that, that's what we reported immediately after this. This is what everybody who was really paying attention, knew what happened, and now it's starting to come out. So all the impeachment, all of the rhetoric, domestic terrorism, oh, how could we allow these uh, a, a Buffalo man and the MAGAs to sort of, you know, um, desecrate the, the citadel of democracy? How could it be? How could it be? So who are they wheeling out right now to comment on this? Here's uh, none other than Michael Chertoff, a former uh, Homeland Security director under George W. Bush, and sort of this is the headline running with this, basically, uh, Biden's uh, calls to defeat domestic terror. And so they're, they're really des so desperate to push this narrative. They're wheeling out dinosaur. I mean, he looks like Nosferatu. This is Michael Chertoff here. And so who knows? They dusted him off of, you know, right out of the basement, basically. Who knows? They've brought him back from the dead. Uh, we thought we'd seen the last of this. This is the man who made millions off of the body scanner, mm. uh, which has been installed in every airport around the world. It was his firm. He used his government position, his position at Homeland Security, and he went right into the sort of airport security body scanning business. Mm. And boom, after the Detroit underwear bomber, that crazy story, you remember that? Uh, after that, that attempted underwear bomber that didn't, didn't quite go off, uh, but that rolled out the whole body scanners uh, around the United States and in all the airports around the world. So that, and again, it's Michael Chertoff himself, his firm, doing that. So uh, it's, it, it seems like we're in a kind of repeat cycle of that right now with, with COVID and, and bios, biosurveillance, but we'll talk about that another day. Yes, but this uh, narrative, this uh, narrative about uh, any Trump supporter is becoming a, a, an extreme right-wing domestic terrorist. They're being uh, pushed to the extremes. Uh, this has been building for a little while. And of course, one of the uh, groups that was at the center of this was the Proud Boys. That's right. Uh, well, that was the whipping boy for CNN, the mainstream media, even the BBC and the Guardian, lots of headlines about the Proud Boys. And if you, if you remember, Trump initially supported the Proud Boys and then backed away from that 
quite quickly at some point. Sure. So. Uh, but uh, it turns out the Proud Boys were perhaps a bit of a deep state operation from the beginning because uh, Reuters are claiming this exclusive Proud Boys leader was a prolific informer for the FBI. That's right. This is the leader of the so-called alt-right Proud Boys, the, the, the poster child of right-wing extremism uh, in the liberal and left-wing Democrat-oriented media outlets. Enrique, Enrique uh, Tario, leader of the Proud Boys, basically a prolific federal informant. So basically, a Fed. We were, we were talking about this many times, mm. uh, and, and I've mentioned it about the Proud Boys as well uh, in the past on the Sunday Wire, that the likelihood of any of these so-called you know, extremist groups or political groups or activist groups, all of them, if you look at U.S. history and, and the Islamic Islamist radical terror cells, all of them feature more or less to, to a group, an FBI informant or one of the leaders is being handled by an FBI informant, I will direct you to the great work of uh, American journalist Trevor Aronson, who detailed that all of these uh, so-called terrorist plots, Islamist extremist plots in, the, in America for a number of years, or basically a lot of them were cooked up by the FBI, mm -hmm. and then they move in to bust the person at the end, they do a press conference and say, we, we stopped this terror event from happening and so forth. And I'll go back to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing in the United States. That terror cell as well featured, guess what, an FBI informant. The FBI was with them the whole way and allowed the bombing to happen. In that case, it was supposedly an accident in terms of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, but I could give you Plenty of other examples of this. So all of these groups on the left, and it includes Antifa as well, most likely, certainly they have FBI informants, normally in the, some of the top leadership positions. Uh, when does an informant become uh, somebody who's running the show? Often they do. Mm -hmm. Often they do. And also, if you're an informant, you have carte blanche. So when you ever see a lot of outrageous behavior or bombastic behavior, we're saying, how could they get away with that? How could the, like the new Black Panthers, for instance, we're talking about burning down uh, homes in white suburbia and doing this publicly. And so how would they be able to get away with that? One answer would be, and in the Proud Boys case as well, uh, one answer would be because they have a golden ticket, because there are, they're on the books of a federal agency or a government agency. That's why. And if anybody thinks that's only a United States problem, just remember it's only a couple of months ago that the UK passed legislation which allows exactly the same type of operatives to break the law in this country in the purpose of running these exact types of operations. So The, the FBI's, just, just last thing I'll say, is the FBI's normal uh, excuse for that would be we needed our people in and they need to be a little bit radical in order to attract some of the other radical people as a type of a honeypot for extremists. And then we can see who's who. We can draw out what they call the toxins in society, and then they can sort of pounce on them when they're out in the open. That's their methodology behind this type of practice. But in the end, Mike, what it is, it's a federal agency who's involved in, in, in uh, sowing division, political division in the country, because the media are using groups like the Proud Boys as the kind of you know face of quote, right-wing stream, and really the whole thing is, a, in many cases, a complete facade. And a state-sponsored narrative. Yes.
Right, well, we've got to leave it there for today. Thank you very much, uh, Patrick, for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we will be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.